I jokingly have called this my white whale because <laughs> uh, although I was able to report on part of uh, the story and of Rowan South Hall, I was never able to fully capture the fraud because it was bank records. I mean, so information I couldn't access. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the city of New Orleans says it now has increased capacity to enforce illegal short-term rental activity, and new software has identified up to 1,000 illegal listings, but only 43 cases have been adjudicated so far. After a long hang-up, around 10,000 people will finally have their records cleared related to simple marijuana possession after being pardoned by the New Orleans City Council in the summer of 2021. And after tabling a measure last week, which would have given $70 million to a new unelected state board called Biodistrict New Orleans, the measure came up in front of the city's revenue committee earlier today. We'll get an update. And Reverend Charles Southall III pleaded guilty to money laundering. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Hey, Carolyn. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hi, Nick. Hi, Carolyn. Lens founder and executive director Karen Gadbois. Hi, Karen. Hey, Carolyn. And Lens editor Marta Jusen. Hello, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Michael, first up with you. The city says it's increasing enforcement of illegal short-term rentals, but its numbers aren't quite where they aim to be. What did city officials say about the state of enforcement as it sits right now? Yeah, so there was some some good news and bad news um, on the STR enforcement front. Um, you know, if, if you've been following our coverage on this for the past few years, um, you know, you'll know that, you know, in 2019, the city council passed, you know, much more stringent rules around uh, short-term rentals, largely aimed at stopping the proliferation of, of, you know, these rentals, especially in residential neighborhoods. Um, but si- since those laws have been passed, it's just it's been a constant struggle between the council and the Cantrell administration to actually get these laws enforced. There have been widespread complaints that, you know, there are these properties just kind of blatantly, um, you know, operating without a permit, operating against the city's rules. And and there seems to just, um, you know, the city just seems to be very slow to react to these cases. So, you know, there's been this back and forth for years. Recently this year, you know, the Cantrell administration, you know, kind of um, you know, told the council that finally we're going to step up enforcement, we're going to beef up, um, you know, our in-house staff. So the office that deals with this is, is now, you know, almost doubled in staff to, to 23 budget positions. The administration has brought on new software that can, um, you know, look automatically data mine, um, you know, websites like Airbnb to check if there are listings on there without a permit. You know, all these things are going to help um, go towards enforcement. But, you know, it, it wasn't all good news. You know, although there are 23 budget positions um, in this office, only about half of those are actually filled. Um, and, you know, when you get down to the brass tax, which is, you know, how often is the city taking action against these illegal rentals? I mean, we're still seeing really low numbers. You know, the, the, the city says that so far this year, they've only held um, 43 adjudications. And now that an adjudication is, is a necessary step in the process if you want to fine um, a property for, for illegally operating. So, again, as you, you know, just looking at those numbers, we're talking about 43 um, at most of these properties that are actually, you know, getting fines for illegally operating. And and, and to put that in perspective, I had mentioned this new software that the city has recently put into effect. 
Um, that software over the last 60 days alone has, you know, produced almost a thousand leads uh, on properties uh, uh, renting out illegally in the city. So, you know, you, you think about that number versus, you know, only 43 adjudications. And you right. know, I think, you know, the numbers just aren't there. And I think, you know, the, the, the administration itself um, admits it wants those numbers to be higher. So on the one hand, they're beefing up, you know, their, their capabilities and they're trying to grow um, capacity to keep these people accountable. Um, on the other hand, you know, that the, the process is still, you know, the process to ramp up uh, enforcement is still definitely ongoing. Right. Even just doing the math at, at half staff of what they propose of, of 23 positions dedicated for yeah. this, but they filled half of them. And then, so, you know, presumably around 10 or so, but only 43 cases have, have come out of the thousand. It's not a high percentage yet for this money that they're paying for people and the software. I assume the software comes with a, you know, some price tag. Yeah, absolutely. And, and listen, there are other tools the city has besides these adjudications. They can ask these sites to delist, you know, any listings that, that don't have an associated permit with it. Mm. Um, so, you know, the, the adjudication isn't the only number to look at. And, you know, again, to, to be fair for the city, I mean, I've, I've been to some of these adjudications, you know, they're, they're not as easy as you might think, you know, like it, it may be easy to prove that a property is advertising without a permit, but proving that it's actually been rented without a permit is actually a little tougher than you think. You know, even a picture with people with suitcases on the porch could mean anything, you know, so right. things that seem very obvious to neighbors, again, to be fair to the city, when it comes to these hearings in front of an independent hearing officer, it can be kind of hard to, to, to prove these cases. So I think the, the city is working on getting more staff to put these cases together. Uh, and they're also looking to, um, you know, bring on more hearing officers um, to, to, to get these adjudications going. I mean, I, we were told that the goal is to have about 600 adjudications a year um, for short-term rental violations. So, you know, again, it, it's, it's much more than we're doing right now. Right. Uh, but that's the plan. Okay, good. All right. And then today, a $70 million, ta $70 million tax plan to fund the bio district was tabled last week after facing community opposition. Today, this is being recorded on Wednesday, the district came up before the city council's revenue committee. What is the bio district? Explain here, explain the whole concept and what's at stake. Yeah, so the bio district has, has been around, you know, for for you know over a decade. Um, it's it's you know this huge swath of of parts of downtown, mid city, girt town, um, and the idea behind the bio district is to create, um, you know, to to really foster a biosciences industry in New Orleans to help create new businesses, to to create new jobs, to help uh, local residents get the education they need to really get these good jobs. And, you know, again, th this has been a ambition of, of you know, uh, government leaders for, for a long time in New Orleans. Um, but, you know, the district itself has never had a funding source. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the proposal on the table now is to, to kind of finally, um, you know, give this bio district a, a um, source of revenue so that it can start taking action to try and foster this industry that's been talked about for a long time. Um, you know, th th this thing has been submitted and polled, I, you know, I think four or five times since it was introduced last year. It's been fairly controversial, at least among, you know, some residents who have watched this closely. Um, you know, the, the, the financing model they're looking at here, it's called tax incremental financing. Um, and, and basically, you know, the way it would work is that within this area of the bio district, um, it would take 
most or, or a big portion of sales tax growth and dedicate it to the bio district. So, you know, the level of, and stop me if this is getting too esoteric, but, you know, it, basically all of the sales taxes that was collected in this area in 2021 would act as a baseline. The city would continue to take that in, but growth above that baseline uh, would largely go to the bio district. I mean, there's a cap on that as well. Okay. Um, and so the max they can get over the next 18 years would be around $70 million. A lot of questions have been, you know, have come up around this and, and, and you know, the contract has seen a lot of changes. Um, you know, when it was first introduced, you know, a big issue that people had is that the bio district, you know, had expropriation powers, which is basically allows the government to, to force people to sell their properties, um, you know, for government use, you know, which is a, a very touchy subject in New Orleans and something that I don't think, um, you know, there was a big appetite for. So that was taken out. There's been a lot of changes to it. Um, you know, when we reported on it uh, last week, um, you know, uh, a lot of the community members who have been advocating kind of uh, been critiquing this plan, um, you know, they say that the plan has been really improved, um, but they continue to doubt certain aspects of it. You know, I, I think that there are, there are few people who argue with the broad mission of the bio district, the need to diversify New Orleans economy. There aren't people who are arguing that it would be a bad thing to have, you know, a bigger biosciences industry here. Um, but I think there are people who question whether this is an appropriate funding mechanism. People question, for example, whether this bio district will actually be responsible for sales tax growth in this area, or whether the bio district will collect this money, this sales tax growth that was caused by other factors, whether mm. it be inflation, recovery from COVID, um, other economic activity going on in the area. Right. How um, do you, how, yeah, yeah. How, how would you identify exactly how that sales tax tracked? Um, but then again, the question is, will the bio district actually be responsible for sales tax growth or are they just going to benefit from sales tax growth that is caused by other things? Right. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, the other big objection here is that, you know, it's not really clear what, what the money's going to be used for. Um, the bio district, if this contract is indeed, does it, if it does indeed get final approval tomorrow, which would be Thursday, um, you know, they'll, they'll be required to come up with a master plan. Um, but only, you know, within 12 months of this contract being signed. So only after this deal has been made. And so some people say, well, why shouldn't we just wait until they tell us what they're going to spend the money on? And then we can vote on whether we want to fund it or not. Hmm. But, you know, I think a lot of those critiques, you know, a, a lot of the community critiques have been, you know, dealt with in, in the contract. I mean, city council at this point does appear to have pretty ironclad budget approval authority um, and, and, and pretty broad authority to cancel the contract. Um, so, you know, we're not exactly stuck with this deal. If the bio district comes back with a plan that the council doesn't like or an annual budget that the council doesn't like, it does seem like they've been able to kind of firm up this broad authority over it. So, you know, again, a lot of what the, uh, the critics brought up originally has been dealt with, you know, some things haven't. And I think that the big thing is that that hasn't been dealt with yet is, you know, whether the city should be doing something like this at all, whether the city should be handing over funds that would otherwise going to general city services to a unelected state board um, doing a very specialized thing. I mean, you know, if you look at their sample budget, this isn't for sure, but they're, they're focused on quality of life issues on, you know, creating better bus stops, better lighting, better public safety. Um, but those are things that the money would go to anyway, if, you know, the funds were in the general mm. fund, you know, mm. just not specialized to this single area. Right. Um, so again, I think there's questions about, is this a proper way to manage city funds to be, you know, kind of siphoning them off to these specialized state boards? Um, so I think there's still 
a group of people who on that philosophical point are not going to budge and are going to stay opposed to this. Um, but I'll say at the council today, there was a, a huge, um, you know, uh, amount of support um, coming from, you know, local universities, Xavier, Tulane, um, Dillard. You had um, leaders in, in, in local um, uh, technology companies um, coming forward and talking about the importance of this. So, I mean, make no mistake, there's a lot of support um, for this biodistrict as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but but again, it was approved today. The modified version was approved in a committee meeting. I really, I, unless something very unexpected happens, I would expect this to get approved uh, by the full city council tomorrow, Thursday. So by the time that this comes out. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for the update. Yeah, thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, Lens founder and executive director Karen Gadbois, and Lens editor Marta Jusen. Hi, I'm Madeline Arufo, and I'm a freelance reporter for The Lens. Our mission is to educate, engage, and empower readers with information and analysis necessary for them to advocate for a more transparent and just governance that is accountable to the public. That takes time, and it takes resources. As a nonprofit, we count on donations to fund our work. Please consider helping us to do this important work by making a tax-deductible donation now at thelinsnola.org slash donate. Thank you for your support. All right, Nick, in August of 2021, last summer, the New Orleans City Council passed an ordinance pardoning roughly 10,000 New Orleanians who were convicted of simple possession of marijuana since 2010, but it's taken over a year to figure out how to clear those charges from people's records. Last week, municipal court judges met with Councilwoman Helena Moreno, and the path to realizing those pardons appears to be moving forward. What's been the holdup? What's going on? That's a good question. There has been some reticence by municipal court judges regarding whether or not they, in their words, have the authority to sort of make sure that these pardons are reflected on um, uh, criminal records. Um, and, you know, this is despite the fact that the, the city council passed this ordinance. So sort of normally how the process works is someone petitions for a pardon. So these these usually happen in individual circumstances um, where someone, you know, whether they feel they've been wrongfully convicted or or, or for another reason can petition the city council or the mayor for a pardon in a, uh, for a municipal charge. And then the council either approves it and then that is sent over to the, the municipal court. In this instance, the city council decided to go ahead and issue these blanket pardons for you know 10,000 cases. And in order to do that, they actually had to change the pardon law um, and grant themselves authority to, to pardon a whole uh, group of cases rather than a, an individual case. So this is really the first time that something like this has been done. It's not like, um, you know, the municipal court frequently receives a, a batch of cases that need to be pardoned. So there was, it wasn't entirely clear how this was supposed to work. And the city council ordinance didn't really lay out in specific detail what was supposed to happen next. They said, you know, we're issuing these pardons and that that's about it. Um, and it was something that, you know, advocates were sort of concerned about at the time that sure we're saying we're doing this, um, but how is it going to actually move forward? So 
you know, like I said, the municipal court judges, I think we're both concerned about the legality of them implementing these pardons. We're kind of unsure about the exact mechanism, I think, for them to move forward and actually make sure they were, they were reflected. Um, you know, this was to the frustration of, of Councilwoman Helena Moreno's office and, you know, to advocates who really wanted these these pardons to, to move forward. But as you said this week, uh, it was a, a representative from, from Moreno's office met with the municipal court judges, and they at least have come to an agreement that that these pardons should be reflected in a minute entry in the person's case, which would provide at least some evidence that these pardons actually occurred. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here because there are still a little, you know, some some things that need to be ironed out, and it, and it seems some slight disagreements based on my conversations with with uh, you know the chief municipal court judge and with uh, Andrew Tuzolo at Moreno's office, but there does seem to be agreement that that they're going to try and move forward with it. Okay, can you explain if if pardoning is that the same as expunging something from a record so that it's entirely it's like it didn't happen at all? No, that's an important point. So an expungement would ostensibly remove this charge from someone's record and and you know when a background check or or when something is checked by an, an employer it wouldn't show up. A pardon does not do that. Okay. A pardon simply says this 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 conviction has been pardoned by uh you know uh the city council in this case um if someone still had outstanding fees to pay or let's say there there isn't anyone currently serving jail or prison time for these charges but if they were you know a pardon would relieve you of, of that penalty it would let it would let you out so in some ways in some ways these pardons are a bit symbolic there are some outstanding fines and fees that i think will be impacted but in terms of expungements, the people who are being pardoned will still need to move forward with the expungement process. The reason that pardons are important, though, is that recently the state passed legislation that waives expungement fees for any mm. crime that, that has been pardoned. Um, and Louisiana has really expensive uh, expungement fees. It's, you know, um, over $500 for a, for a single charge. So... Mm those can be really prohibitive for people. In this case, um, if these pardons are, are reflected on the record, then people should be able to move forward and get a free expungement, which would then, yeah, remove it completely from the record. Okay, all right, all right. So you you said there's still some steps to come. And people- Yeah, that's right. So when I was talking to the, the municipal court judge, she seemed to indicate that he thought the city council would need to basically pass another motion that that would sort of issue these pardons. It's not entirely clear to me. I, I think the council, or at least council uh, woman Helene Moreno, disagrees with that interpretation. She kind of says, you know, we've already done this. Um, the pardons have been issued. This is now on, on the court's end. They need to, to initiate whatever they have to do on their IT system to, to grant these pardons. So I think those conversations are whether or not that that's necessary is those conversations are sort of still ongoing. I think if it came down to it, if they determined that they needed to pass another thing, they would go ahead and do that. Um, I think they're pretty determined to get it done at this point. And the, the big hurdle of sort of the judges agreeing that they can even do this, um, I think, has been overcome. Hmm. So I do think it's likely that that they'll get it resolved in one way or another. But 
it's not entirely clear how it's going to uh, play out yet. And I'm sure some anxious times for a lot of people still waiting. Yeah, you know, I think that that these a lot of these charges are, are pretty old. And I think one thing that advocates are thinking about is, is once these pardons get on people's records, they really want to make sure that people know. Um, I think it's not entirely clear that like any individual is a, even aware that they've been pardoned hmm. um, because they're, you know, not it's not like the court or or anyone is is going to each person and, and kind of knocking on their door and like let, letting them know. So I think there's going to be some some form of an outreach campaign to kind of let let people know and you know also let them know about the the possibility of getting a free expungement. Okay. Wow. All right. Okay. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. Karen and Marta up next with you. Reverend Charles Southall pleaded guilty to money laundering and obtaining nearly nine hundred thousand dollars through fraud. This comes one month after he was charged with money laundering and a bill of information from the Department of Justice which generally indicates an individual is cooperating with the investigation. Reverend Charles Southall was, is well-known throughout Baton Rouge and New Orleans. He defrauded his own congregants in addition to the church he ran and some of its assets, including rental properties, directing the money to himself. Southall, who sat on the board of now-shuttered Harney Charter School in New Orleans, also used money from the school to pay off personal credit cards. So give us some background here on this guy, Karen. You, you've been covering him for a long time. Tell, tell us about your early days of, of encountering Charles Southall. Well, one of the first stories I did for The Lens, actually the first story involved, not Reverend Southall, but first NBC Bank. And after I did that reporting about a uh, long-suffering uh, neighborhood's blight issue with this with this shopping mall, um, I began to look a little closer at First NBC Bank. And along the way, I saw that uh, there were a number of properties where uh, Ashton Ryan, the CEO of the bank, and Reverend Southall had collaborated on obtaining um, low-income housing tax credits. So I, I jokingly have called this my white whale because uh, <laughs> although I was able to report on part of uh, the story and of Reverend Southall, I was never able to fully capture the fraud that was being, because it was bank records. I mean, so information I couldn't access. But I did um, end up at the, uh, in Baton Rouge, going through the state's uh, low-income housing tax credit applications and reports. And basically they had been funding him to the tune of millions of dollars for one particular property that I was interested in, which was um, on the corner of Claiborne and, oops, I can't remember Cross Street, but it was a Central City Claiborne property that has been, since demolished, where he was continuing to receive federal funds until the state would disperse the funds, said, this guy's not in compliance. Meanwhile, the city was giving him money and he was getting letters from Senator Landrew and others talking about what a great uh, guy he was. So um, he's always been sort of in the back of my mind. And then Marta sort of picked it up, up the thread. She could pick it up here uh, in terms of what his activities were with charter schools. Yeah, Marta, let's move into the Harney School and, and the spirit of excellence Sure. And so, and so like Karen mentioned, um, 
uh, Reverend Southall was working, you know, alongside with Ashton Ryan, who was the president of First NBC Bank. That bank collapsed in glorious fashion, um, leaving, you know, tons of people. Uh, what's the right word? Holding uh, the bag. Yes, <laughs> um, honestly, and I think I believe it was one of the biggest bank collapses since the 2008 financial crisis. But, you know, so along with his um, business relations with Ashton Ryan, um, he also sat on the board of this charter school, Spirit of Excellence Academy, which was the nonprofit group that ran Harney Charter School. Both Ashton Ryan and Charles Southall sat on that board. The school had a number of issues, um, had academic problems, had special education problems, and then kind of had these bubbling up um, financial issues as well. Some of the financial issues that were first realized were flagged by the recovery school district um, in that the school had hired its own CFO to do some additional accounting work. And that's a violation of state ethics code. You can't hire one of your employees on a separate contract to do mm-hmm. essentially, you know, your own job. So that was, you know, one place where it stood out. Then we started looking into, you know, credit card receipts, um, and other things like that would notice, you know, some slightly extravagant spending on meals and other things like that, that just didn't seem to line up with, you know, generally what a a charter school board president would be doing. Not to mention that this school we found out from a a trusting source was withholding, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars um, from employees' paychecks that were supposed to be sent to their retirement accounts. Mm. And that money was not being sent to their retirement accounts for weeks or months at a time. So they were losing out on that interest and and that, you know, that growth potential. So there were just basically red flags everywhere you looked. He clearly had another number of schemes going and, you know, he knew what he was doing to get that money in his pocket, it appears. He uh, sold his rental properties that he had ostensibly church properties and pocketed that money. That's another part of these charging documents is he was either, you know, redirecting rent from those rental properties or ended up selling off some of those rental properties that were, in fact, owned by the church. Um, he also defrauded parishioners, according to the the charging um, documents or his guilty plea. Um, one parishioner for, you know, around $10,000 and another one for $106,000 for money that he said he was putting toward church needs and that actually was going into his own his own pocketbook yeah he had a self-tithing business (laughs) ouch i did research a lot of his business at the at the church and one of my favorite photos is a picture of him having his feet washed by the parishioners which i think it's supposed to be the other way around but what do i know Ah, uh Pretty unsavory behavior all around. So give us the the list of of what he pleaded guilty to. You know, I don't have the exact charges here in front of me. What I will note is that, you know, he faces up to 10 years in prison and up to three years of supervised release for for these charges that he's had. He will go before a judge for sentencing in January. Um, And one additional note is that, you know, in... Throughout all of this, um, he's agreed to pay restitution um, to two of those parishioners, but he's also agreed to pay restitution in the amount of around $85,000 to the Spirit of Excellence Academy, which is that nonprofit that 
is not authorized to run a charter school in the in the city. Um, so I'm very curious whether or not, you know, the Department of Education or the New Orleans Public School District will in, in some way try to recover that money that was clearly meant for students. Right. If that if the nonprofit is no longer operating, where do they direct that money? Right. Yep. So I think there's there's a lot of a lot of questions like that. Total. Do you know how much he's being ordered to to pay back? Not just to um, the yeah. spirit of excellence, but all together, including the parishioners and. There's basically a, diff- a bunch of different pockets. So eighty five thousand to spirit of excellence. He has another eighty five thousand, or sorry, eighty five thousand to spirit of excellence. Uh, six hundred eighty seven thousand to the church. Uh, ten thousand to victim A and, and one hundred six thousand to victim B. Wow. So is it clear that he has the money to to pay this? No, I have I have absolutely no idea. I know as part of the bill of information that was um, entered in September, that's when we kind of found out things were first moving with South Hall. Um, he was being forced to forfeit um, one of his cars. I think it was a BMW. So at, at the point where you're being forced to forfeit assets, that makes me feel as if you might not have that cash on hand. So I think it's really unclear here where that money is going to come from. Or maybe it's just a... a- spiritual and moral victory for the victims might not be financial. We'll see. I mean, it, it's possible he has, you know, more of these properties in the church's name too, that that would be um, somehow given over or, or something along those lines. I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. Okay. What comes next? Um, he'll go before judge Zaney for sentencing um, in mid January. And he'll certainly see some time. I would guess so. Um, he's, he, Suppose he could face up to 10 years in prison. Uh, the other big question mark here is um, it appears that he's cooperating mm-hmm. uh, in the first NBC case. Uh, so Ashton Ryan, who we've talked about before, is one of a number of first NBC officials who've, who've been charged with um, fraud at first NBC. Okay. Ahab, I mean, Karen, sounds like you got yes. your whale. <laughs> did when I felt when I felt like no I've got a couple others that I I'm waiting for somebody to still at sea yes (laughs) well you keep it up thanks thanks you guys great great week thank you thank you thanks Carolyn all this is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans first non-profit non-partisan public interest newsroom I'm Carolyn Heldman Thanks to our guests this week, Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Crastel, Karen Gadbois, and Lens Editor, Marta Jusen. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>